0: I'm in East Village, actually, in uh, New York. It's oh. pretty nice. I'm around the corner from um, <clears throat> from Charlie Parker's house, so I can kind of go over and, like, I look at, the like, the plaque on his house all the time, and it's across the street from Tompkins Square Park, which is where, like, a lot of the beatniks and, like, uh, Bob Dylan and shit would hang out. So it's a pretty interesting area. Um, like... I don't think it has the same countercultural like feeling that it used to, um, back in the day. Like it like Franco Hero is like I guess I'm the Franco Hero, like walking around here, but um Yeah, no, it's a nice area. It's it's there's a lot of like weird history here, so yeah.
1: I've never been to to New York. I I would love to, but I've never been there, so everything for me sounds like Oh man, you're,
0: you'll never see it now. Yeah. It's all gone. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> when, I,
0: when friends would visit, especially European friends, I would always take them on what I call the uh, the disaster capitalism tour, mm-hmm. um, which would start at my place, of course. Um, and yeah, we'd go past Charlie Parker's house, through um, Tompkins Square. I'd walk people over to St. Mark's and show them, um, yeah, little spots over there, and then. Actually, in Union Square, there's uh, the Decker building where Andy Warhol was shot by Valerie Solanas. Mm.
2: Uh, oh,
0: okay. Yeah, if you know AGF Bone Producer, uh, we went in, I took her there when she visited and was like, hey, we have to take a picture here. She was so into it. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then. Uh, and then it continues um, over to Chelsea, past the Chelsea Hotel, where like 2001: Space Odyssey was written. Um, uh, do you know much about like the Chelsea Hotel?
3: Yeah, of oh, a little bit. Yeah, I because mean, of punk yeah. um, and the film yeah. from Andy Warhol and the whole history and Nico and so many of them. You know, were there?
1: Oh yeah, he did do a film.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Then uh, actually, I have this like weird Andy Warhol book that I should use at some point that like has a map of all the places that he thought were relevant to New York. Um, Mm. One day when I'm super bored in quarantine, I'll probably find all of them. Mm.
1: And and, um, have you heard about this uh, different hypothesis that actually uh, lockdown is going to do a great positive deal for New York? in terms of avoiding extremely wealthy, like, uh, nonsense tourists and they, uh, suddenly there is no point to invest more money in Manhattan, etc. I don't know where where I read this. Oh, no, regarding.
0: you're onto something, but it's kind of funny. Um, that's actually the reason I'm in Manhattan and not Brooklyn right now. Um, so a few years ago, that the train that goes between Manhattan and Brooklyn, there's only like two. but um, The main one, the L train that the hipsters take or used to take, that um, that got really damaged a, a, a number of years back with Hurricane Sandy and was never properly repaired. So it technically should not have been running, but like the the MTA that in the city were kind of doing like little updates on it, and so. I was afraid that they—they they, basically the city was supposed to shut it down um, for like a solid year and really work on it, which I think a lot of the realtors in Williamsburg would have sued the city for um, doing. It. Yeah, exactly what you're kind of saying. Um, so yeah, I moved to Manhattan because I was afraid Brooklyn was going to get cut off from from Wall Street. There's not a lot of banks in Brooklyn, so money doesn't really circulate that well over there. But. Um, yeah, now that I'm in Manhattan and coronavirus has hit, and all the retail is pretty much gone, like Soho is a it's it's a it's ruins. Like there's nothing in Soho. There's no stores, um, and it's really eerie. It's kind of cool, but it's really eerie. And
1: I, do you think it has something to do with the situation that New York suffered before, or just at the beginning of the Trump? trump family era
0: (laughs) oh man i'm glad i got the weed that's (laughs) uh that's a great question i think it has a lot to do with the trump family and in fact what trump does is that he gambles bankruptcies right he's a really good uh sadistic negative space gambler um and yeah he caught new york right at a time where it had just had been it was hit by a really bad crisis and actually i've talked about this before in other interviews but um the only reason new york came out of this crash in the 70s was because the teachers union realized that if they did not throw their money at at the economy basically uh they would all lose their pensions so yeah the crash that we're dealing with right now has everything to do with that particular crash and i mean trump came in and started buying real estate and like spreading out amongst his friends but then also after 9 11 there was a guy who took out a lot of insurance money on the towers and built uh this actually two malls he built one like really traditional like giant golden luxury mall and then another called like the oculus and it looks like this giant like Godzilla figure—it it literally looks like something like Neon Genesis Evangelion like came out of the ground in the middle of Manhattan, and that—and <laughs> I mean that's—you get a shit ton of people dying in 9/11, and like that's what you get out of it, right? It's like a giant, like horrific, um, shopping mall monster. So yeah, it, I mean. This is happening because America has a gambling problem um, and they're not very good at recognizing that about every 30 years America has a small crash and every 100 years we have a major crash. Um, So (sighs) The thing is like I don't think the rich people will stop investing in New York because they haven't invested in New York in the way that um, That people traditionally uh, invest in places I think. Like, for years, uh, some of the main housing real estate in the middle of Manhattan, these, like, luxury apartments are actually completely unoccupied and, uh, and are owned and sometimes leased by people in other countries. There's, like, statues all over the city that are owned by, like, China and, um, Saudi Arabia. Like, there's... Yeah. (laughs) we The city is basically a giant resort, um... And so long as... Andy Warhol and, like, you know, Nico and the Chelsea Hotel are relevant to people, that New York will continue to be that. But what happens on the ground here is a different story. And that's kind of what I'm waiting to see, actually, is, um... There's a lot of rich people in Manhattan that don't necessarily realize that they're more or less upper-middle class in in New York. And so, as, like, the lockdown has kind of, like, lifted a little bit and, like, the economy has opened back up, You've seen, a, I've seen a lot of people just like out in the streets, like piss drunk at like noon and everyone's like doing this like weird hippie thing now where they're all like sitting in parks, they're playing hacky sack and, um, and all of the black neighborhoods were the giant hotspots. Like actually the, the place I moved from, Brownsville, before moving to East Village was one of the hardest hit spots in the entire city. Um and the thing to know about Brownsville is that uh Robert Moses uh the, the the urban planner and the city actually worked together to design what I think is like 3 or 4 square miles of project housing so like prison like giant uh brick and cement built prison like structures for low income people that are mostly black um and that that part of town was designed just for them and the police force there which was ironically across the street from the apartment that i had um was actually known for being quite aggressive with the locals and uh yeah actually there's a whole like documentary i believe that was done on the police force that uh that was there um yeah. So,
3: That's so, I and, got the weed. <laughs> <laughs> so and the protests have been very I mean I presume they've been very different in different parts of New York, like the were you following the protests more in Manhattan or also in Brooklyn or in other parts or how um, were you experiencing them?
0: Mostly in Manhattan because they're like it's a thing where I would go grocery shopping, like my partner and I would be walking around and literally one night like we walked into a crowd of police officers like with like you know automatics ready and their sonic weapons and shit out and i was just like oh wow there's a fucking war going on what's happening and then there's a bunch of like 19 year olds like a bunch of 19 year old like white kids like like a crowd of them marching up the street the street screaming like you know black lives matter and i'm like oh shit this is like you know this is the protest um so my partner and i've been kind of like taking pictures and i've been recording the protests and we've also like you know kind of taken part and walked around uh next to them but and so i try to we try to do that like my partner works a nine to five but we try to do it on the weekends and also at night um just wherever they are like last night we walked down to uh City Hall to check on some friends and to also, like, you know, see what supplies were needed. I'm not occupying City Hall or kind of actively participating in the protests as of yet, and I'll talk to you about that in a bit. Um, And it has a lot to do with the documentation that we've been doing. But um, in regards to Brooklyn, I've actually, for the last few weeks, I've been listening to police scanners on Twitter. Um, um, and kind yeah, of listening... Yeah, it's been really helpful because also there's kids on Twitch and Facebook Live that are, like, uh, <laughs> that are live-streaming their protests. And also some kids that were, like, live-streaming their um, the looting. And so my partner and I would just spend all whole night, like, kind of jumping between multiple live-streams of both the looting, the protests, the police scanners, and trying to really, like understand what the hell is going on because I mean obviously there's still a virus going on outside so we're like trying to figure out the best way to help without also endangering and also in spreading and spreading the virus so it's kind of but it seems like wearing the mask is actually helping um which is good.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, unfortunately for United Kingdom, seems to be the case that actually, if you wear a mask, makes a huge difference. Yeah. So, and they, so they were actually using sonic weapons, the police. I, I wasn't sure, I heard something, but I, I, no one told me. Yeah, they were,
0: yeah, I haven't experienced it yet. And that's the thing, like, I've seen them, like, mobilizing, I've, seen footage but yeah i actually haven't like i haven't been beaten up by the police yet and not really looking forward to that idea um
1: and,
0: and it's kind of funny so i've been working on this book assembling a black counterculture um for the last year on the history of america and techno and exploring how techno is a prefix for the word technocracy or a um, society or government run by technical experts um and it's been really interesting because the book has... The end of the book has literally been playing out in front of me right now. Um, and my editor, uh, Camille Drummond, uh, called me up like just after George Floyd, uh, the, like, the footage came out. And she was like, you can't protest it for us. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're right. And she's like, you gotta finish this book. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And we talked for like five hours about it where we're just like... Like, fuck, 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 like, this book was, like, you know, it was a cool speculative idea when we started on it back in, um, November, but as I was, like, you know, tracing how, I mean, basically the book starts around 1820, but kind of glosses over, like, the 1600s on up, um, but it mostly focuses on the idea of like uh, the plantation farms that slave African American slaves work on in the American South, um, which is where I'm from in Alabama, and uh, the book kind of takes that transition from slave and plantation labor to what we know as uh, I guess corporate uh, structures and like white collar jobs, but also blue collar jobs, and how um, that. Basically, later became the sort of data white collar jobs that we know now, and this, and then the sort of blue collar uh, delivery service jobs, and I guess what we're calling essential workers now. Um, and yeah, so this new development of like essential workers and um, and like the work from home kind of thing is a it, it threw a wrench in the entire book because I did not expect. Like I knew a crash was. I knew an economic crash would happen in 2020. It's why I moved to Manhattan. It's also why I moved to New York because I wanted to witness it. Um, but and we'll get <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get to that too later on. But at, um yeah, it, it's just I did not expect and like what Alvin Toffler was writing about in the book uh, The Third Wave, where th- this idea of like technocracy comes from with this particular iteration of technocracy. Um, he was pointing at the fact that America and, thusly, the world through like global trade was moving from assembly line labor to data labor, and how that was a much more abstract, you know, concept of uh, production. While we had also moved off the gold standard, and he was suggesting that, you know, the future that these waves of industrial and productive uh, I- advancements we're maybe moving faster than we, we could keep up with. And in another book, Future Shock, he talks about how, you know, we're actually literally being shocked by the future. It's like, it's it, it like we're getting so much information from the, the phones and you know, it, it, it just, yeah, we're literally being shocked by, yeah, the future. Um, and yeah, and here I am in 2020 in Manhattan and Jesus, I'm being shocked by the future where I'm watching where I can see, like, I've watched that George Floyd video upwards of 50 times, where I've like sat, I've seen, there's like four or five different angles of that video. Um, From uh, security cameras to like various people's cell phones, and I've been thinking so much about how the George Floyd... The
1: dimension of the perspective.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's like a Rashomon effect, right? But you're also getting this weird McLuhan thing, where the thing is, like, Again, the, the whole point of the book was to cover the fact that America, like, is a giant uh, plantation. It, it's a like American citizens are not citizens. We are workers. We are here to pay taxes. We are here to do work and to help the country produce goods for Europe and the rest of the world. Um, that's what Trump is on about. He's not a crazy man. He knows what he's talking about. It's just that a lot of liberal Americans forgot that were workers not citizens they they got too liberal um and that has a lot to do with the hippie movement and obviously the stuff that used to go on in uh in east village i mean that's what a punk is a a punk is a guy who's basically you know thrown off the idea of being a wage worker and and wants to live a different way same with the hippie um yeah
3: yeah. it's, it's interesting because um yeah, in fact, uh, we were talking with Matt Ryhurst and he brought the um, uh, book of um, Fred Turner from, cyber, from Counter-Culture to Cyber-Culture. And it's very interesting the way that he points out how uh, Stuart Brand and the whole uh whole earth catalog you know that they started as hippies you know and commune, you know like it, having a you know a catalog to you know what people would take to their communes and there was all these you know references to cybernetics and books and you know and then how this when he in the 80s he was totally lost uh to a brand but then he encountered the hacker culture And then it's just like, oh, wow, this is very similar to the way of, you know, kind of anti-government or anti-organization type of structure that I was, you know, taking part. The question is like the way that this um, is similar, you know, also with the punks, you know, that they promote a certain uh, sense of, freedom that inevitably cannot go beyond uh, the freedom of the individual so then it meets neoliberalism in such a perfect way Mm -hmm. that uh, you know it's I mean you know like the punk I mean growing up we both you know like uh, Miguel and I come from that scene and we thought like okay this is counterculture but you know it's also very close to a Nietzschean mens kind of notion where, where it's like you know fuck the rest you know I'm just gonna do my own thing and like but then that fits perfectly once neoliberalism has kind of broke already with some kind of established family bourgeois values and other forms you know, once that is already broken and then it's just like to have the drive for self kind of
0: uh, Yeah, what do you mean call it? Gratification it's, Yeah. I mean yeah, what would you call it? Because I mean, that's what I'm seeing here in East Village it, it's it's a lot of people that are just consuming. They're consuming a lot. Like, it's, it's a weird thing. Like, all the shops that have been able to reopen are literally like lemonade stands. And it feels like my partner and I have been calling it a, calling East Cella because it feels like Coachella with like no music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, you go outside and people are like playing hacky sack. And, and the craziest thing is people have been playing a lot of black music. Yeah. And so you're getting this like counterculture going on while this literal counterculture is happening. Well, I mean, the thing is, okay, in Manhattan, the protests are largely white. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not, from what I understand, it's more of color out in Brooklyn. I haven't really gone to Brooklyn too much because, you know, trains and they're not very clean and...
3: Maybe in Harlem in Harlem maybe it's a bit different or
0: Well Harlem's pretty gentrified. Um, well, ha-
3: Harlem is already okay, okay, I see. Okay.
0: now the thing to know about America is that if a white person wants what a black person has, they will take it. And they will take it in spades, and then they will tell the whole world that they didn't take it. No. And that that's just the whole thing you have to know about America. They're lying. <laughs> it's um I mean that was what's so interesting about Joe Biden when he did the whole like uh if <laughs> if you don't vote for me you're not black it's like he actually thought he had the authority to say that it was a joke but that's kind of what's like quite interesting about america and that same audacity is what's playing out right now um in like the parks like central park and stuff around the city is that when we were under lockdown i think a lot of people knew that they had good health care they knew that there was a class of people that would be taking care of them. And that's the thing about the, the Black people being, um, and, and Hispanic people being at the highest, uh, the, the highest like affected um, of the virus, is that it's not just that, you know, it's not pre-existing conditions by itself. It's also that we're working. They're the essential workers that are taking- Yeah,
1: obviously they are the frontline workers. This is like so obvious. Uh, here in, in UK, uh, it's exactly this the same problem. Uh, black community in, in London is like twice uh, the the number of uh, cases than the average white dude with a white collar job. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah.
0: no, totally, and it's I mean, and that's also the thing with the white collar job. You do tend to be able to work from home right now. And, and part of what I wanted to share with the book is this slow transition that America did and then later exported from slave labor on a t- plantation to this idea that there's a group of people or a class of people that can work from home or just make enough money and to be load from their jobs and just get pissed drunk outside and then lean on top of Black people and Hispanic people that are working and are, you know, also more likely to catch the virus, and it's—I mean, this is the audacity of capital and empire, like kind of showing itself at its very end, right? Like this is a uh, this—I mean, this isn't even as cute as Rome. Like at least Rome was like off fighting too many wars when the barbarians came in. Like, like America's literally like sitting on its ass, like drinking a smoothie and like watching Family Guy and going, "Well, I don't—I don't know." It's—it's it, it's interesting because um. I think it's too illogical for a lot of people or a lot of my friends around the world to understand, like, why America is letting this happen. Um, But the reason is that it's when you come to a new place and you murder everyone, every person and every tree, because trees are living things, when you kill every tree and person on the entire, like, continent and then enslave another group of people and force them to work for you and then develop what we call a modern society out of it. There's an audacity there that I think just doesn't go away and if, if America w- hopes to not reach 200,000 deaths by August and I think they will or we will um, if they hope to not you know let that happen I think they should learn some humil- humility but you can't correct five, six hundred years worth of colonial excess. So it's yeah, it's a really interesting time. I mean, and that's one of the main reasons to go all the way back. That's why I'm not really protesting like that um on the ground, because I feel like it's more important for me to be talking like right now, to be saying this stuff. Um and that's the thing, I've been even though I don't have the time, I've been taking every like conversation or, or like interview job or essay job that's been thrown at me because now is the time to to fill in the context for everyone for them to yeah, know. If- yeah, sorry.
1: No, no, no. Absolutely, this is something that Martin and I we were talking about that precisely. Now I think it's really necessary to 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 provide context and try to think about this. And I think you are using Detroit as part of this narrative to explain the current situation, right?
0: Yeah, it's actually really great that you brought up um, Trump and New York before, because that ties into the, not necessarily into the book, but it's in the same world as the book. Um, And that Detroit, I think, was the first time after the Great Depression that America really should have sat with itself and gone, okay, maybe we're not doing this urban planning, global production economic thing very well maybe there's a reason we have crashes every 30 years and they didn't do that um instead what they did was they left the city to black people and they built slums around it and like in the city just caved in and that's where techno comes from it comes from a bunch of colonizers going you know what this colony didn't work so let's just like cut it off and leave the workers there um and New York, absolutely could have been that, um, but because the teachers who were already not well paid, like basically gave up, or yeah, just threw what money they had at the um, at the city, New York, or Donald Trump was able to kind of take advantage of that and to build up this this Disneyland Fun House that we call a city. And that's what I meant about wanting to come to New York to see the crash. Um, in 2008 that was another one of those moments where I think America should have taken a really hard look Um, I had just graduated high school and started college when the crash happened and subsequently The Dark Knight came out in July of that year and I'm a huge Batman fan Um, little known fact but um, (laughs) (laughs) so I was there opening night at the damn Dark Knight uh, film and you know I've been meaning to rewatch it because I haven't seen it in like fucking like yeah, I guess almost a decade. But um, I, I've been thinking a lot about that Joker as opposed to the new Joker quite a bit and the idea of of just like kind of sitting a whole city up in smoke for the hell of it, um, just to really see if you can. And I, 2008 was that, like seeing that movie and then the crash, because my, my, my father's an economist, I should probably say that. Um, so he, we talk about this stuff. And, um, yeah, I saw the crash coming, and I started college, and I was really worried, like, as an 18-year-old, because I was like, man, you know, I don't know, like, my dad had told me all about Reaganomics, and, like, how Reagan just, like, he would always say, during Reaganomics, you get really good service at McDonald's, and I think (laughs) about, (laughs) yeah, and I was like, shit, you know, I'm really glad he told me about that, because I was like, man, I really get to sense America's gonna go through that again. Because, like, I was a really futurist kid. Like, I had a computer in my bedroom at a young age. And, like, uh, it was on Wikipedia, like, all the time. And, and yeah, around 2005, I, I at 15, I started to notice that, you know, we didn't have flying cars. You know, we weren't shoot, we weren't the Jetsons. We weren't shooting around in tubes and, you know, in and, and the future. And I was like, you know, what if that was a lie? And I don't know what made 15-year-old me think that. But that kept going until I got to college. Um But anyway, the crash happened, and Obama became president, so there was the Obama kind of hope, and eventually, I started, like, Obama came out and was, like, saying that he had, he was still paying off his student loans, as the student loan issue uh, kind of began to build up, and so, in 2013, after being audited for some classes, because I, some institutional bullshit. I decided to drop out with like three uh, credits left and I moved to New York. I had some internships that I had set up up there um, at like Triple Canopy and um, this other literary journal The American Reader. Um, And the night that I got there, or the first day I got there, I went and saw Matt Dryhurst speak and hung out with Bill Kooligas and met all of them in that single go. Um, And it was one of those things where I was really glad that I gambled. Um, Because I, I just... What I started to notice in college was that, you know, the retail... I started reading about the retail collapse. Malls in my town had already started shutting down, and I was hearing these stories of, like, dead malls. And I was like, you know, I don't... I really just don't think America's doing that good. And so I moved to New York because I knew that, you know, if there was ever going to be a place that Godzilla attacked, it would be New York. Um and i knew that
1: <laughs> and I, and i was like hey, As the film showed us in the late 90s
0: exactly yeah totally so you're just like sure and lo and behold new york is the the fucking coronavirus hotspot of the world and yeah. i my my partner and i were like so yeah it's funny
3: yeah. I was I was uh, actually in New York when the whole crisis. I was living two blocks away from Wall Street when the whole crash happened, and I remember oh, sure. buying the Sunday Times and reading like uh, on the cover, Wall Street, rest in peace. And we all knew that it was, you know, like, okay, it did not happen that way. And Obama took all these, you know, uh, advisors that they were already from the whole banking system, you know, and we all know what happened. And, and uh, but so it's very interesting that you bring up like people like big colleagues and all this scene, because um, it doesn't strike me. On the one hand, they've been as people that have been extremely crucial for dynamizing the last decade in terms of music. Uh, but uh, as you have a very acute awareness of economics and the racialization of certain specific processes, uh, this uh, in this scene, um, I was missing perhaps a bit that, or maybe uh, you you could maybe tell me if you found. That you could yeah, were those able to
1: up hunger,
3: or they, or, you know, <laughs> because you're one of the few people, or maybe it's my ignorance, that you are able to do both, like uh, amazing music. I'm extreme fan of your music, but also making Thanks. a context of uh, trying to find out, you know, its historical context in relationship to both economics, race. And other aspects that uh, not often are, I think, uh, dealt with. So, were you be able? Obviously,
1: you're... as your cap says, I mean, there is a movement in the last decade of white dudes doing dance beats. It's, mm-hmm. it's a fact.
0: Yeah, the thing is, like, by the way, I'm totally fine with white dudes doing dance beats. I mean, that's why i <laughs> that's why I'm on Planet View. Like, I freaked out when I met Mike Paradinas, <laughs> and that's the thing. That, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't move to New York to hang out with, with Bill Kooligas if I didn't think Mark Bell was like worth a damn. But um, like, come on, Sensei Focus, that shit's great. But um, but also, you're seeing why I was like, you know, let me get get some weed. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> America's a fucking tragedy. It's like it's the best and worst like sci-fi movie ever written, and the people of America are too literally illiterate to know that they are living in a beautiful shakespearean play that uh, in god i have no clue how it's going to end but the thing is the script of america is the is the economy and that that's the whole thing it's the, you, you said that 2008 didn't happen the way that it um was supposed to and obama took the advices of wall street the reason is if wall street collapses white people will kill everyone and I, I don't say that to be hyperbolic. I mean, hopefully you've seen enough of, you know, the, the cop killings and the mm. mass school shootings and the, uh, and the, what, I need more weed. Because <laughs> if you, <laughs> this is actually what my whole work is about. It's like, just being like, oh fuck, like the economy is God here. Like that, it, it's not a, it, it's not a joke. Um, I thought it was a joke and that's again why I moved to New York. I also moved to New York because I knew that Bill Kuligas and Pan was coming um, to New York. I, I actually moved my um, trip up to New York back by, yeah, I moved it up by two weeks to, to come early. And what I saw in Bill and Pan, and like my friend like Stephen Warwick and and James Hoff, who's publishing my book, like what, what I saw in them was a way out, or at least a different way of thinking, and like. I read a lot, like as a kid. Like I was aware of, like you know, the like French existentialist movement, and like I was aware of the Situationists and like um, you know the the Zero Group with like Yves Klein and stuff. And I, I always thought that stuff was so cool. And I thought that you know Bill and Matt Dryhurst and all these people were the sort of new incarnation of of these thinkers coming to New York. I mean, and in a way, that was true. But in another way it's also you know they're all pop stars so i and that's kind of if you've if you ever wonder like where my twitter comes from and that theory it comes from the idea of recognizing that like i don't think people realize that a literal holocaust is happening in america um a very covert one and it's all to fuel the economy i mean so much of our money and labor comes from prisons and yeah, if you could just see the number of black men specifically that are in prison for things like, you know, small amounts of weed, which the weed keeps black people ontologically calm, um, or the ones who, who need it. That I mean, there's other ways, there's religion, there's uh, some people dive into their work or their families, but, you know, as a creative person, I use weed. But, um, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I was, um... Yeah, I was just always a really curious person, and, and I, I came across Pan and Tiny through, through Tiny mixtapes when I was like writing in college. Um, and yeah, I, I just saw all these like theoretical ideas coming out of like out of that sector that just seemed really interesting, um, and I just wanted to be a part. I, I mean, I was in Alabama, and th- there's not much going on down there. Actually, no, I'm lying. So. <laughs> In Alabama, I, I went to a school called uh, the University of North Alabama, and I don't know if you know the band the, or the bands—the Civil Wars, the Alabama Shakes, or Jason Isbell, yeah. the Four Hundred Unit—they were all from that town. Um, and that town also had the Fame Recording Studios, where like Jim, Jimi Hendrix, Etta James, like all like recorded records. The Rolling Stones recorded there, um, and yeah, I, I, that's where I went to college. And I, I while being around these people just kind of being around them i i saw what a music a successful music scene could look like i i watched people graduate college and go up to nashville you know signed to like third man records like jack white would come down to the town and like recruit people and shit and like i figured since i could navigate that on a small scale in this small alabama town maybe i could try it in new york um and try to ride out the crisis until this current one in 2020 and you know maybe see what comes of it maybe i could like yeah again with pan it it just seemed like the most mainstream counterculture thing that could happen and it it all seemed possible because of the internet or at least to me um
1: yeah yeah, maybe it is the case, no? It seems to be the project that from the counterculture is uh, achieving the highest level of impact and influence, no? But the, what, uh, may I ask you, uh, what did you start studying at college?
0: College was interesting. So actually, you know, I've never laid this out for anybody, so I, I may tell the whole, like, structural story. So when I got to college um so i didn't test very well on like the act or sat and honestly i didn't think i was going to college i was this fucked up you know genius kid that was like writing novels in high school and shit. and but my test scores like my standardized test scores which is something that alvin toffler also writes about in future shock and third wave is the standardization of like human intelligence performances um i was really bad at these like multiple-choice tests, um, and so I was pretty sure that, like, I wanted to go to an Ivy League, but I just was certain that I, I wasn't going to get accepted, and I just, I had been playing trumpet since I was a kid and managed to go to um, UNA on a trumpet scholarship, um, which was great, and I continued to play for a few years while I was there. Um, but the whole plan was was to play trumpet and to study that um, unofficially because I was in the band, but to study journalism as a practical thing to make my parents happy and minor in philosophy. Well, the journalism program there was, uh, because it's in the deep South. So, okay, we'll, we'll take a quick break here to explain another thing about America. So there's a production lag or like a distribution lag across the country that Americans do not talk about. Um, so you have technically four different countries in America. You have the Northeast, the Southeast, the sort of Midwest and then the far West. And I guess you can kind of divide like the mid Northwest and like Texas and stuff from each other, but it's whatever. Um, But because of the way those territories were acquired throughout the 1800s, because that's the thing, the book starts in 1820 because America was just the East coast and the Southeast at that time. And by 1870, America had pretty much gathered the entire thing through the Mexican-American War and um, the gold rush and stuff. Um, but anyway, there's a production lag and or a distribution lag of like information, and I noticed that what I was being taught in my journalism classes were not what I was... Like, like basically, I had a teacher that told me to write a handwritten pitch letter to a magazine and... Um, or that was our the class assignment was to write a handwritten pitch letter to magazines and to see if we could, you know, pitch an article. So I pitched to like tiny mixtapes and like pop matters or some shit because um, I was into music and I did it online because I was like, I, you know, this just doesn't seem right. <laughs> and I was like, man, am I wasting my money at the school? And I, it's like, yeah. So what I did after that was um, I ended up writing for tiny mixtapes. And then I switched, Um, I I took a a film theory class uh, randomly because I wanted to, I needed an elective and became really enamored with the idea of film theory rather than like production. Um, And so i worked with the, there was one film theory professor on campus who was strangely like also like a psychoanalyst and like an experimental musician and (laughs) um, funny guy. I, I don't know how he got trapped in Alabama, but. And then there's the philosophy professor um, who was a uh, Dewey scholar or a scholar in Dewey and mostly focused on like uh, religious experiences or sort of like religious uh, ontology and also um, I guess like ethics and, and law. So that was a weird combination. I like both of them a lot. And I was just like, you know, why don't we like form some kind of like weird interdisciplinary study thing? And they were like sure and so i would go you know to their houses i'd go to their offices and we take private i have private classes with them and they more or less kind of built up this library for me across like you know psychoanalytic film theory and like habermas and and marcusa and Deleuze and all that shit and my i had to write a thesis to justify that having happened by this point i would stopped playing trumpet because um it was taking up too much time and I was really getting into electronic music and just didn't see a future in playing the trumpet anymore after having played it since I was seven. Um, but because of that, I wrote my undergrad thesis on this idea of, I guess it was taking like Hegel and like, uh, and, or doing it was like the culture industry and, and Hegel's like, uh, idea of like the zeitgeist and thinking about abstract, um, well just thinking about the internet, again what we were talking about with like the and stuff, like thinking of or, or Pan was is thinking about how these countercultures and American influences got distributed across the world. Like I was thinking a lot about how Coltrane and, and a lot of the jazz musicians were sent to Europe as a initiative. And like same thing with the abstract expressionists, like America was literally selling people to show Europeans that we had culture. Um, and yeah that basically the the dean read the the thesis and was like i don't know what the hell you're talking about <laughs> um and by that point i had already secured some internships up in new york because yeah because i i just you know saw some exciting shit going on up there like triple canopy had just opened and like Eflux seemed to be kind of like being a more popular thing, and, like, Verso books, like, I, you know, I saw people online that were interested in that stuff up there, um, or up here, and my mom is from New York, uh, so I have family up here, and, like, it just, I always felt like I probably should have grown up here anyway, so it was kind of like, fuck it, you know, I'll take a, I'll just go, um, but I wanted to graduate first and, you know, get a degree and go get a fucking job, but, um, because this dean looked at me like it was a funny thing i like sat in his office and he's just like man what the hell did you write like i I can't pass you on this and i was just like that's not the point the point is like you know i gotta get out of here so i ended up calling him a cunt and he got mad and i dropped out and moved to new york the next day um oh fuck (laughs) yeah and uh so that's kind of been the whole thing is um it it literally just so happened like that. Pan was doing a project or, or like a festival with Issue Project Room, which is how I got in contact with Issue Project Room. And it just yeah, literally taking a gamble and moving early is the really the entire reason we're having this conversation now.
1: Um, well, yeah, it's part of the fabric of these yeah different fields. That are all across the the globe, uh, yeah, describe the 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 situation of the counterculture. But it's really interesting because it touches like very different specificities. It's like, well, this is the rhythm
0: analysis. Like I, people ask all the time, like, what is a rhythm analyst? Uh, and I picked it up from Henry the Feb's like book of essays, um, because I figured people needed a name for what it is I do. Like, I, okay. The the entire reason I call myself a rhythm analyst is actually because I randomly got an email from Spotify um, two years ago, and they were like, "Hey, we want you to come give a talk on release cycles, and you know, and and like maybe mentor like some artists for a day." And I was like, "Huh, it's weird that you're calling me." And I was like, "I guess I have to sound really official." um so I was like man what's my field of study and I thought back to what I had studied in school and then and yeah I was like I guess when you're juggling speculative economics and history like 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 this and like generational lines which we could talk about American generations in a bit too um yeah I was like I guess yeah I guess that's what rhythm anal- analysis is it's a bit more broad than what Henry the feb was kind of pointing to but I mean yeah across human history with give me a date or a time period and you know a bit of information that i can kind of work out some logic for you like um and that's a lot of what i worked through with the the philosopher and the film theorist was um really learning to see the the world or to see the frames of the world and to know how to kind of play with all the tropes of like the human imagination or whatever um because I mean, it, it, like in in the plays, you have the the gun on the wall trope, right? The the gun's always there; it's just waiting to be used. And I try to, to use all of it. Um. So yeah, it gets yeah. <laughs> and New York's a good city for that because it's really fast, or was.
3: And do you f- yeah. do you find like inspiration from the work of More Modern and rasida Phillips on blank quantum futurism, where they play with this like, yeah, notion like history you know like speculative histories and like playing with you know what it could have been and like kind of changing the linearity of time around and experimenting in different ways is it something that kind of you see some uh, resonances to your work or some differences or is it inspiring for you
0: yeah totally i'm a really big fan of um rashida especially but also more mother uh, because yeah I was actually just really happy if anything that like to see someone else especially someone black doing this kind of work mm. and I often wonder if this is a kind of work that black people have been doing and ought to be doing um I I mean I think a lot about like what it means to be to be black in America like in a really like ontological and like epistemological sense right um so and maybe that's okay maybe i should explain this construction both to you and the audience because it it may make things make a bit of sense um so what black people in america are in part are a group of west africans off the coast of africa um so they more or less people were like kidnapped and like played Kidnapped, sold i mean you hear people were sold but it was really just like someone owed a debt or like had to go to jail for a petty crime and like you know a colonizer basically bought the person sit and didn't abide by the uh i guess the terms of the contract and just kept them so they they brought all these people over um to the u.s after fucking over like the taino population and what's now like i guess modern haiti and stuff um which that's a whole shit show into itself. But um, so the black people that were held and transported into the American like uh, sort of northeast and south were held in captivity for their entire lives, and that that should have been one generation of a few million people that were like um, more or less tricked into the sort of um, or I guess really, this accumulation of people across like quite a bit of time. But anyway those people were eventually bred. And so there's a a, a eugenics aspect to this and a very hard ontological and epistemological like, uh, like generation that's happening. Like they're literally generating more black people by forcing them to breed. And so those people who later became me are kind of just like stuck here because we're hostages we we have no clue like um and actually okay so i joke a lot that like with the underground railroad and that's why part of why the book starts in 1820 is that there was a crash that happened um that caused a bunch of slave revolts to kind of happen across the the american south and there was a migration through the underground railroad of of african slaves to the north and they would pop up in places like detroit or what we know to be modern-day Detroit, um, and the thing to know about America in that sense is that America was two different countries at that point, or two different like uh, uh, like territories. It was the Union and the Confederacy. They were not like the, what, what the Confederacy was was anything that the Union did not recognize, but that was occupied by a colonizer. Um, so this like black zone of like you know, so the plantations going on down there had nothing to do with with pretty much any of the presidents leading up to like abraham lincoln like they the presidents didn't care about the slaves because they didn't it wasn't their property so if white people ever and and i say white people as in people european peoples in america that have bred themselves into white people and and like classify themselves as white people um they if they say that you know You know, that, like, I don't know. If they say anything about a previous president being not okay with slavery, that's a lie. He just... It's just, you know, it was just different territory. They were totally fine with it, and it was a different way of living. So anyway, these Black people started running up north and escaping slavery and popping up in Detroit and, like, other... In, like, Chicago and New York and all these other places. And you should probably think of that as... Kind of, like, smuggling coke, like, suddenly, like, or, or I don't know, yeah, just smuggling like drugs or gold or like you know, bitcoin or some shit. Um, and I think a lot about how black people literally ran into the future, where in the north they were building cities and 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 like, like the, those types of structures, like skyscrapers and stuff, they, they existed down south, kind of, but not like the architecture was just totally different, and like the idea of detroit becoming this car city the idea of new york having wall street like these are all things that african people which we were not allowed to read um, so we didn't we couldn't learn to read we could not speak the english language um, which is pretty you know limiting as you could imagine so we run up to the north and suddenly you're seeing cars you're seeing like vending machines and shit and i think that that's something that a lot of black people don't talk as much about. It's this idea of literally walking into a sci-fi future and like like going from like one kind of reality to another while not having the literal words to describe what the hell is going on, and then adapting to this. And it, and that's um kind of where techno comes in for me. Um, is that that's in a, through the different types of musics that. Black people have made from blues to um, to rock to soul to jazz and you know on up to techno. These are all ways of us adapting to our sonic environment. Um, because I I think that yeah it it's I think people underestimate what it must have been like to have no language. To describe the reality that you're being dropped into or even to describe what previously happened been happening to you um, and down a generational line Um, and so yeah when I think about Rashida Phillips and like more mother and what they're doing I, I don't want to put words in their mouths but I feel like if we were to put them on a map they would I, I feel like there would be a lot for us to talk about in this idea of like uh. I mean I guess he wouldn't even say mono. it's like negative phonic like experiences. Like like I, I heard that um, what is it? not boogie, there's a hmm. there's a kind of music that basically was supposed that starts with a B that was supposed to be black people like mimicking the sounds of like hearing train tracks and that was like this, this new thing um and, and the thing is like you think about the first film. Uh, in America, um, the, a train comes to a station, and it's—I don't know if you've seen it. It's great. It's one of my favorite movies. But literally, a train comes towards you into a station, and then it's over. Um, and, <laughs> and they've played at carnivals, and white people like literally threw themselves out of the way because they're like, "Oh shit, a train's coming!" Um, yeah. And so, I mean, it's, and that's the thing—it's happening to them too. They're just more in control of. The technical they're they're the technical experts or at least closer to understanding the logic of the technical expert and the technical expert is also designing for these people so you get a kind of a wizard of oz uh kind of thing happening here and, and the thing is it, it just is the case like there's a bunch of Oz's like you hear about the conspiracy of like the illuminati and stuff that's just Americans not knowing how to talk about the various white men that have built all this technology and money around them. they um, and I, and it, yeah, I think War Mother and like Rashida, in a way, are kind of like addressing the concerns of not having, yeah, words, or I guess, not having, yeah, any context for for what industrial capital is and means for a white person. Like we were just, just here.
1: And do you think it was the same kind of attractor in Detroit in the early '80s, late '70s, for the the outbreak of techno as we know it? Yeah, the, the engagement with technology and with uh, sequencers and shit.
0: Well, what happened was <laughs> so. I don't know if you've ever seen this interview with kanye on um jimmy kimmel like a few years ago he's like wearing Mm -hmm. this like white like kind of shirt i'm a big kanye fan um uh, you'll see why in a second (laughs) he's a funny guy um i I would love to hang out with him but (laughs) just because anyway um he is sitting on jimmy kimmel and you know and he's talking about simulations and he's like i'm writing a book called break the simulation and i'm like okay man sure you're referencing the baudrillard book i i see you okay and he's like you know you know how a kid like jumps on a table and he doesn't know what's wrong yet and everyone's like what's going what on you talking about i'm like oh i get it you're talking about developmental child psychology and like you know like these sort of habermasian ideas of public and private I'm like what does it mean for a, a child does not have the idea of embarrassment or of uh imminent destruction that a grown person in Western society would have. I get it, Kanye, keep going. And he goes, you know, I've heard of history class, but I've, I ain't never heard of future class. And Jimmy goes, what? And, and you know, I, I, I sat there and thought about it. And I thought about being 15 years old in 2005, and there's a game called Final Fantasy uh, Versus 13 That was supposed to come out. There was a trailer for it That came out and I was so fucking excited For this game. It was the first M-rated Final Fantasy game And like the trailer was banging Like it was crazy like You know like th- There's a track on um On my new record Black uh, Black National Sonic Weaponry that With the uh, cyanide that kind of in my mind, kind of sounds like that song in a way. But anyway, that's in that trailer. But banging trailer, I was just like, "Oh my god, the great, greatest graphics!" Like I was really into like the uh, the graphic wars, and the whole like console wars back then. But um, the game never came out. Um, it ended. Up <laughs> they like really sold this game to me. I waited years, and I realized by college, I was like, "Fuck, this game isn't coming." It came out to a year ago as Final Fantasy Fifteen. Totally different story. I, I don't even I don't even recognize it, but I've seen this game over the fifteen years like become this thing um, that is not what I thought I was going to get, and it was at that point that you know going back to Kanye, it's <laughs> when he's like you know I ain't never heard of Future Class. I'm like you know we didn't get any of the shit that we're supposed to get in the future. No flying cars. Like there's no spaceships. I mean. Sure, we went to the moon that one time, but Challenger blew up on, like, fucking public television. And, I mean, in hell, by... And I totally forgot this until, like, a few weeks ago, but NASA hasn't had the money to fly space shuttles in the last 10 years.
1: Oh, yeah? For sure. Yeah, and I was
0: just like, fuck. We've been talking about all the spaceship, and we literally don't have the money to go. And I was like, damn, you know, I think America's a scam. (laughs) And then... (laughs) And so, and then I, you know, found out. So okay, how I found techno was through Alvin Toffler's Third Wave, which turns out, Juan Atkins read that book in a future studies class in Detroit. (laughs) And I went, oh shit, 19-year-old Juan Atkins also read this book. I bought it at the local library uh, in my college town for 50 cents. Uh, and he got it in a whole ass future studies class in the in what was supposed to be the the most utopian techno utopian city in the world um.
1: there is something interesting that maybe you are aware of this. Uh, you know this guy who is the managing director of Peter Steel capital called Eric weinstein mm-hmm. so we are. Not we are the physicist, but works like managing the finances of Peter Thiel. And both of them are quite concerned with this idea of um, the dreams about the future that America had in the 50s, 60s stopped. And the scientific advance in the mid-late 70s um, reached a point in which we are no longer creating a a horizon of the future, because there are certain Mm -hmm. um, um, forms of creating a post fordist economy that is not interested in, in moving forward and creating new scientific paradigms. So after the Second World War, there were Huge uh, scientific advance, mm-hmm. uh, new paradigms like the uh, uh, applied cybernetics, computer theory. So we had the internet, which was yeah a kind of instantiation, massive instantiation of the principles of cybernetics. But after that, we are living in a kind of hangover. It's it's quite interesting because they go in, it, they are weird libertarian figures, but they go into very particular details of a state's economy that I have very, very little understanding. But obviously, there are reasons, economic reasons, why we don't have, for example, every single car, electric or, I don't know, flying cars. Yeah, this yeah. this idea of the future from the 50s, that basically is the idea of the future that the still permits our collective imaginary.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's what was so interesting to me about a 19-year-old Juan Atkins reading that book. Because honestly, and I got to meet him very briefly um, a few weeks ago through a class that King Brit was doing. Um, And you know, I think he read it and was like, that's real cool, man. (laughs) Techno. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and I think about that a lot where this dude literally because I mean you're talking about these, these two uh, I, I guess figures working with Peter Thiel like that's literally the Illuminati, that's it it's these yeah, yeah. technical experts that are ah, uh, like, and it's not to get all conspiracy theory, the thing is all the conspiracy theories are true, Americans just don't have the critical language to assess this, I mean because our schools are shit but also I think for Europeans, America is too far out. Like it's too like I don't think anyone wants to believe that we are actually a cyber technocratic fascist holocaust genocide country. Like I think that that's just too far for the for the imagination. But it's true. I mean, America's a big ass warship, and Detroit was one of the three engines. So New York, Detroit, and uh, like San Francisco were the three engines of this country to run. And and I always call America a warship. That's, like, sailing around the world, like, blowing shit up and, like, taking, like, petty resources. Um, And, yeah, Detroit was one of the engines that collapsed. And now New York is another engine that's about to collapse. Um, And, but, yeah, when Juan Atkins, like, read that book and then got a Korg MS-10 and, like, thought to express himself, that's one of the first times in, like, history, I guess, that, you know... A kid of that demographic, let alone like a black person, as a like marvel of modern, literal mar- modern science, like they we were designed. Um, by, that's by,
1: super weird. It's yeah. super weird. You know,
0: and that's the, that's the thing. No one talks about this because I think it's something that is a little too uncomfortable for a lot of black people to access. But also, I, I yeah, I don't think people want to think about it. But like it, it's undeniable. Like we were bred, and it just you. It it just, yeah, we are fucking, and this is something that uh, Cornelius Harris from uh, Underground Resistance is kind of like, he's the label manager, but he's suggested this as well, that we we are kind of like robots or some new kind of human that actually need to be like understood by the UN as a crime against humanity. And the UN needs to be sanctioning the fuck out of America. But, you know, we'll see. We will see. Because they let a nuclear, well, two nuclear bombs go. So, you know, what can we do?
3: I, I'm I, I'm I'm fascinated by this um, way of having to you know, dealing with history, or who, what ways you know, one's deal with histories, and what can be kind of taken from. And like I I I, I really like when you bring Sadie Smith in the Sonic Acts uh, conversation, and when she says that you know. Uh, to have nostalgia is a privilege, and the way that you know, you know, what many white people want to return to the, you know, to the 50s or to any other kind of era, well, you know, you know, like that's not I mean, possible they're, they're, for they're... others. Yeah,
0: I mean, even more so. Like, and, and totally this, absolutely this. But the flip side of it is because because America is a giant simulation, it's a giant play. Um, there's a back of house to this the same nostalgia as well. What they ultimately want is to be able to have black people as game that they can kill. And this is something that um, I think needs to be understood that what the KKK is, it's it's regular white people throughout the day. They would just, lie their, you know, they would be normal people and then at night, they would go kill people. Like they would bomb houses and go like, you know, it's like a fucking horror film and like that's why black people were running up north and continued to run up north until after the civil rights movement is like you know it's funny i was just uh, watching watching a interview that my sister did with my grandfather a few um she did this interview in 2012 and he was i'd never heard this interview before and he was talking about how you know he was terrified to leave the house at night because yeah people would just show up like hung from the trees and and, like, he would sometimes, like, perform what I realize now is, like, guerrilla warfare, where he would, like, throw rocks at moving white cars and stuff, and that was, like... He was a teenager, and that's why he moved to the to New York. Um, but... And also, okay, there's a particular story that I... is quite famous that I like to tell sometimes because it puts a lot of things into context, but... So I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, which is where... Um, a lot of the civil rights movement began and, like, really formulated. And there's a church that they would all gather around, um, and that Martin Luther King would go to. Um, and it's the 16th Street Baptist Church. Um, and for whatever reason, the city's planning to rename it Black Lives Matter Avenue, um, which is fucked up because that church was bombed by white supremacists, and they killed four little girls. Those were the only people in the church were four girls, and that's what kicked off the Million Man March. And, like, the I Have a Dream speech was that these monsters, like, fucking killed four children for, like... We actually don't know why. I mean, that's the thing. We actually... I don't think black people will ever get that answer as to why the cops feel the need to, you know, have their knee on a black man's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. I have no- we- we can't answer to you. And it's funny, in the first track of my record, uh, Black National Sonic Weaponry, my cousin actually says, she's like, why do they hate us so much? And I- I- I, I mean, I imagine it's because we're their afterimage, but, um... But yeah, it's, so anyway, growing up up the street from this church made the sort of past quite tangible for me. Um, and I had a conversation with Robert Hood um, about a year ago, where he was—he he lives in Alabama. He moved to Alabama after um, leaving Underground Resistance, and he. We had a really good long conversation about it where he was just like you know i can feel the blood of the slaves in the air like i can feel the the cursedness of this land like i can like just all the trauma and shit and i think that's a lot of what um I mean, maybe that's the reason why I think like this. It's just so much trauma. Um, I mean, my grandfather was a slave, uh, or my great-grandfather, until like 1930, and that's a whole thing where I found, my uncle showed me like the contract and it's like being free, and like I slept in the bed that he died in, um, in the house that he had built with like, what money he had gotten as formal reparations, and like, yeah, just being encased in in all of that history and somewhat unbeknownst, I don't know, I think that kind of does something to you. I forgot what we were originally talking about, but... Uh, oh, it was the American Dream. Yeah, so with yeah. all of this in place, you think about Juan Atkins sitting down with a Korg MS-10, and he has his yeah. headphones on, and he hears, like, you know, a pew-pew sound for the first time. Like, that by, made by his own hands. And it, you can imagine it feels like being... A technical expert like you're in the cockpit of Oz. Um, and it, and yeah the kind of power and also like possibility I think of electronic music for black people is something that's kind of unspoken about. I mean Matt's, yeah I guess yeah both of you saw the performance in, um, in Rotterdam last year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a part of what that was like i mean there was like alessandra mason and um and dream crusher and there's the moment like my ipad cord or the ox cord fell out of the ipad and we kind of like started like chanting and i don't know what the fuck was going on we like performed this like west african like ritual all of a sudden and we had a long conversation about it afterwards but i mean i think that's what Juan and you know Rashida and War mother and myself and like what we're all going through is this sort of epigenetic like rate like it the spirit just kind of like shoots out of us sometimes and we're like, oh shit, what's that? Um, and so we're haunted by the past but also still adapting to futures that are moving super fucking fast. And I mean, I think it's a miracle that black people have been able to sort of like to adapt and, and innovate Twitter the way that we have. I mean, yeah. It, yeah, it just.
1: And, yeah. and before, before, before we uh, forget that you you mentioned that you were um, gathering, uh, I don't know, field recordings or documentation from the protests these weeks. Uh, what are you up to in uh, in this process of uh, documenting the protests?
0: Honestly, initially, so all of the recordings were for uh, Black Nationalist Sonic Weaponry. Um, In. I guess to frame this really quickly, what I mean about black nationalism, because I had a really stupid Instagram argument the other day with some guy being like, any kind of nationalism is a form of fascism. And it's like, look, we're 14% of the population and these white fuckers like bred us to like be here and like, they won't give us resources. They take, they massacre like our, like our towns like Tulsa, like every time we try to establish something. So, you know, fuck it. You want a black nationalist state and if you have a problem with it, you're the fucking fascist. But anyway, that's my word about black nationalism but um and that's also sonic weaponry because that's what i'm using to say fuck you to that dude um but also <laughs> um the recordings I, I went to the protests obviously expecting a lot of angry black people um but i'm no longer i guess maybe adjacent to that community by proximity so it's a lot of new school students a lot of like billy eilish kids um and sure, go for it. You know, happy for them that they're having their, like, hippie moment. And I I, I, think, it, they, I think it'll work. And I, I'm sincerely happy that the youth are... That this is a youth movement. Um, and that's weird for different reasons, but we'll come back. Yeah. But um, anyway, I was taking the field recordings because I wanted to try to capture some of this Black energy um, that... I guess I was kind of referring to with like performing and stuff, but instead what I ended up getting was a lot of police. Um, and I thought a lot about that, about how triggering it is to, I mean, to use the the term triggering, um, yeah, how triggering it is to, yeah, to hear police and to know that they are there to kill you, especially in regards to protest situations. And it's a thing where I was not, yeah, directly in the line of their crossfire, but it was a thing where you you can see in the cop's eyes, you see that they're, like, they're, they're revving themselves up to, like, beat the shit out of someone. um, Like, they're, they're, they're thirsting for it. And it, and so, yeah, I ended up capturing a lot of that, which I don't think is audible in the record at all, but hopefully some of the energy is. um, And yeah, that's pretty much what I was up to with the recordings, was just, Making sure that it that, that the sonic recording felt like the moment, as opposed to I don't know, maybe making like kind of archetypical like field recording studies.
3: And talking about the future class that Kenny was suggesting, would you dare to speculate about the near future? What do you think it will be happening? In America.
0: <laughs> um, damn. Okay. So, before I go to the future, I'm gonna go back.
3: <laughs> okay. Because <cool>. um, <laughs> so,
0: there's a whole way that I generate these ideas of um, of I guess you'd say yeah, future studies. So, there's these two dudes, uh, William Strauss and Neil Howe, that um, wrote a book called Generations, and they were the ones who coined the term millennials, and They wrote a book that... Actually, it's right here. Ironically, it came out on the exact same press and the same year as uh, The Third Wave. Which, so this is playing a big part into the book as as well because, I mean, yeah, you just can't get past these coincidences. Um, But it's a history of America's future from 1584 to 2069. I... Basically, what they do is they kind of go back to when Christopher Columbus first came over to the uh, states and, or came over to modern day, like, yeah, what we know to be the modern day states, and kind of build up each generation of children and frame them in archetypes and, like, frame like, life events around them going all the way up to, yeah, millennials. And so you can kind of get a succinct impression of. Not so much like I, I wouldn't read it like a horoscope. I would more or less read it like a like a nice little report of of those years, and like kind of if they talk about like what's happening or how the people respond to certain things. and And I think that they missed a lot um, because I mean, frankly, the white men writing their own history and they won't include stuff like the Salem witch trials. It needs to be known that what was happening was that. The first like six journeys of uh, colonizers over to the Americas did not include women. The women came later as a kind of uh, unsuspecting cargo, and they were there to, you guessed it, breed more people so that they could colonize the, the states. So that's something that I don't think they spent a lot of enough time on, but that's what um, Silvia Federici covers in Caliban and the Witch and some of her other works is this idea of what the role of the woman is in society, and you can, I've been pairing this with uh, Pierre Bourdieu's Masculine Domination as well, to kind of figure out I would say that the white men were good at, at at oppressing the black people because they were really good at oppressing the white women and that was a systematic thing where I mean, yeah, you take people to a foreign land you see this in that movie The, the Piano that wasn't in America, that was like New Zealand, but similar kind of setup if you're wanting to like imagine it, um, yeah, the woman comes over or the women come over and they're just like, you know, I'm here. And the women that were witches that were burned, I would suspect were women that knew what was going on. They had kind of figured out that, I mean, maybe they were not okay with the white men murdering all the natives. Because the thing is, you hear about all these wars with natives. I don't think there were wars. I think that's that's just too tidy for me, because if there were wars, you would imagine that some of the Natives would actually have survived and, and even thrived in a sense, like these communities. Because these are like multiple types of Native Americans across a whole huge continent that's twice the size of Europe. You can't just say Native Americans. These are like, they wiped out like a shit ton of people. And I imagine at some point the white women were like you know, like, Harold, don't, don't hit him anymore, just like, stop, and, and he's like, no, I have to kill the Indian, and it's like, you know, and it's this, like, fucking, like, Cronenberg movie, where he's, like, st- just, like, murdering, and, like, the woman's like, please stop, and then he slaps her, and it's a whole, like, fucked up situation, um, and I imagine the stress of that, and the, the women started to talk about escaping, and, yeah, I believe that those were the ones that were possibly murdered, um, as witches, I mean, we can also talk about the lobotomies of like the 19th and 20th century, too. Um, and that's a whole thing to talk about, like like birth control and like the pharmaceutical industry and what that does to both the libido, but also to like one's just general sense of self. Um, and like this idea of like psychological numbing. Like I made a post about Karens the other day on uh, Twitter and the point of that video, Was mostly to talk about the fact that everyone here, except for the white men with money, are beginning to see a shift in their behavior. Well, we we first saw the shift actually in the timeline that you brought up earlier with Donald Trump, man. That was in the '80s, after the after like those '70s crashes. America got tired of uh, you know being a place where constant recessions happened and they started gambling quite a bit um, and the gold standard and then be struck gold in the in the 80s um and then obviously the dot-com boom with the 90s kind of picked things up and what's important about the dot-com boom is that millennials were born at the same time so me i was born in 1990 just in time for standardized tests to kind of be trickled in for uh all these like psychological terms to be sort of placed on children at a young age, which were initially meant like the DSM five was meant or the DSM was meant for soldiers, not for civilians. But now you have civilians saying that they have bipolar disorder and PTSD when we have not fought in any wars. We've just been living everyday life. Um and we don't have ADHD. You just can't force a child to sit into a You know a desk for eight hours a day and recite like algorithms back to you Um, actually
1: they are using the same meds that they were using for soldiers yeah (laughs) it's it's exactly the same kind of chemical composition
0: and yeah totally and that's the thing my mom's a social worker um and actually works a lot with yeah (laughs) so the thing is and she actually would be the one who would come to the school sometimes and would pull kids out and that was a thing she would be like you know man i know so much about the kids lives around you because I, I i see their paperwork you know and um yeah so basically she didn't want me taking medicine for adhd um and like i later found out that i was quote unquote bipolar and like like every other like millennial kid I was like oh my god i'm depressed i you know i have anxiety. And then, you know, you think about it, and it's like, why do we have anxiety? The economy bottomed out in 2008, and the Federal Reserve has been throwing petty cash at the economy for an entire decade, waiting on apps to blow up so that we could recover in 2020. Well, that was bullshit, and now the 2020 crash is going to hit 16 times as hard because just yesterday, another million Americans, like, applied for unemployment. And if we defund all the cops, you're going to have all these cops um, that get laid off on unemployment, plus the student loan debts, plus the real estate debts that that's going to, basically over the next four years, you're going to see America, like, just crumble to its knees, and it's going to be fucked up, and it's going to be dark. It's going to, like, I've been meaning to watch that movie, uh, what it's like to be a god, because I get a sense that we're going to be going back to a kind of, a kind of dark ages that we're very much aware of and i already see it happening here where slums are starting to appear but like people making the thing is i think americans will get universal basic income but it will look exactly like what we have right now with unemployment which is 1200 dollars whenever they feel like it um and then you're taxed on it the next year um and there's no retail coming back. Like I walk through Soho all the time now and I just like, there, it's, it's a wasteland. Like there's nothing that can fill those spaces. And actually my partner has been trying to predict whether or not she, she's been watching the, the real estate and she's been trying to predict when they're going to start finally tearing down the buildings and realizing that maybe either coronavirus will keep us from going back inside again, or, you know, the there's just not enough retail to fill the spaces, I suspect around 2027, they will maybe start tearing down the first buildings because Americans are silly and they hold on to things and I, yeah, no, the next decade for America is going to be really, the thing is, I don't think America will know. I don't think they'll notice because they didn't notice the last 10 years was was a recession. In fact, about a year ago, I started hearing rumblings that we were falling into a recession and I broke out laughing because i was like man we never got out of the last one so yeah, that's- that's,
1: yeah yeah yeah. that was something that at least for us that we are from the south of europe uh, we never felt that okay this crisis is over yeah. <laughs> no there is no tabula rasa no yeah i mean that's the whole thing i mean
0: but also i mean that's where millennials come in where I moved to girl grow- uh, up to New York a year after the show Girls premiered, and thank God for that because <laughs> I um I got a sense of what millennial white kids were like outside of like Alabama. I had never really seen them before. I had read about millenn- and I-, I talk about.
1: Ulfer Hoving was your frame of reference for that. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, that's like indie music, like Arcade Fire, Pitchfork, like that's all I knew. I didn't know these kids. I I met some of them in college, um, but they were still a different brand from, like, the Oberlin or, like, New School Kid. Um, So, yeah, I was, like, you know, really looking forward to meeting these kids. Well, I moved to New York. I met them. They are fucking assholes. They're all hysterically racist and have no clue. And the joke is, Minnesota is where... Or Minneapolis, Minnesota is where George Floyd was murdered brutally. And ironically, that's where a lot of those kids are from. And so... I mean, all these kids that I would see at the Eflux Talks, I'm like, man, it's your parents. Your parents are brutal, vicious, like, racist, and you don't know it. You don't know that your parents voted for Trump, and they they, they still don't know. And so you have these millennials that I suspect it would become conservative by 2020 because I they're turning 30. They, you know, they're turning 30. The economy's bottomed out. There's no jobs, but they hadn't figured that out yet because they all jumped into marketing. Um, and... Yeah, I Oh, another prediction that I should probably make now is something my dad has been telling me for the last year. Um is that the entirety of Black wealth will drop to zero by 2050. I suspect that will drop by 2025. Just because of the coronavirus, which was a wild card. I did not see coronavirus coming. I knew that borders were closed for some reason. But I never imagined a killer Godzilla virus. Um, so good on Mother Earth. That was well played. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's my prediction of the future.
1: <laughs> and uh, well, we can stop now. But that, this is something that um, I am e- extremely curious. What's your um, intuition regarding the next, the immediate election? Oh
0: man. The thing is I always thought Trump was going to win. I just like worked with that knowledge that he was just going to win it. And and the thing is I knew he was going to win the first time. In fact, in, in his second debate with Hillary, he starts talking about the TPP deal and he was saying how you know, we've been losing X amount of money from like outsourcing all of our like production to China and he's like if we like open up this trade with Africa, we can beat China from like taking over and monopolizing that trade and i was like oh fuck he's right and i went outside and i just stared outside i stared and actually i looked at that police station i was telling you about i just looked and was like fuck he's gonna lock us in this damn country and really try to whip us into shape and the thing is the middle american whites want that like that's what these truckers want that's what the the whites premises that's what the cops want they want to work this they want the jim jones thing they want the uh they want to really see this cult to the end. Um, and I think it was Mer- Charles Manson, yeah, he wanted to wait out the race war and like jump in yeah. and like take over America. And I was like, fuck, he's going to lock us up in here and say, have at it. And as you see, I mean, it, it's kind of what he's doing. Um, so now that that's strangely all happened across the summer, which Jesus, like, I mean, to be real with you, you, you've already seen a decade worth of what I thought was gonna happen in about two weeks So my head has been like, I mean, I've been smoking so much weed like, I'm just like Jesus um, And I mean finally like I'm in an emotional place to talk about it, but I'm just like before I was just like, oh fuck But um, yeah, what's gonna happen is I think The Simpsons uh, was right. I think Trump will die um, I'm just kind of waiting uh, to see I, I think he will die. and I think Joe Biden will slide right into the presidency and I think he's gonna be an awful
1: president. Oh, yeah, because he is brain damage. Uh, yeah. but, but but twenty 20 people from uh, Trump's direct uh, workers and so were asked to do quarantine, no? Since yeah. Then.
0: Oh, yeah, there's so many people. It's... I mean, yeah, he's going to Arizona, I think, now or no, no, I think it's one of those W states. But yeah, he's going to a state now, like today, actually, that has had, I think, the highest rise in the entire country. <laughs> so no, and that's the thing to know about Americans. Like, they really
1: edge it. They, they gamble hard. Um... Yeah, I mean, in your history we can see (laughs) extreme moves so it's not impossible that he dies oh my god yeah so so much fun oh my god if he doesn't (laughs)
0: die he's going to be president that's the thing like he's gonna be a fucking god and so and that's the thing we're writing some really interesting lines here like because yeah if he doesn't die basically we're just gonna Obviously this place is gonna crash and you're gonna see Jim Crow basically kind of re-emerge. And at that point, I would hope that the you that Europe would. I mean, but that's why I'm talking to you now, right? It's like, you know, if Trump becomes president again, Europe needs to start a war with America. Um or or something. Like something. they they have to stop it. And I've been t- it's funny, I had a conversation with AGF about a year ago, where she was like, you know, things are gonna be okay, you know, it's I know you're depressed about the stuff, and I was like, "Nah, and yeah." I was like, "By the time Europeans figure out what America is, a lot of people are going to be dead." So we're at a hundred and forty thousand now. Um, so hopefully, Europe's listening. It's
1: it's in, it's incredible. It's incredible because <laughs> yeah, again, uh, I, I don't know, but I see uh, in the Anglo-Saxon world this attitude, this kind of liberal attitude that yeah coronavirus is real but it's not as real as capital mm-hmm. so uh, it it doesn't matter really we have to continue pretending that this is relevant but not so relevant so there is this body count that is progressing forward and it's, it's, insane. it's I'm, insane
0: honestly i'm just happy that it's a virus and not I mean, the lynchings have continued. Oh, that's something I didn't say, um, and I probably should have said during the talk, but it's whatever. Is that lynchings are a four-man job. You cannot do a lynching by yourself. So if you... And there have been five black men hung in the last week. So that's the thing. So there's... Yeah, just multiply five by like by four, and there you go. Um, that's how many white men you need. 20. But... um. um But, um... (laughs) I'm just, like, throwing out numbers here. (laughs) But, no, um... It's, uh... But, no, it's a a real concern, because I'm glad that it's the virus and not, like, an actual civil war. I don't necessarily think the civil war will happen. Because I I think that... I mean, Richard Spencer's already been, like, discredited, and, like, there, there are no, like, real, like, like, visible leaders. I mean, but I guess that's also, like, what can be scary about it. But under Biden, I think everything will be chill. We'll just have a really shitty presidency, a really shitty economy, and then, uh, you know, AOC will run in 2024, and then we'll have our Lisa Simpson president, like, uh, like the Simpsons predicted. But, no, it really is incredible that America just is this callous towards death. Um, and the thing is... I, I, honestly, I wouldn't put it all in America. I think it's the Western world. I mean, I think Sweden has shown that it will justify its deaths, actually. And I think in Germany, we, we've seen, at least in Berlin, that they will trivialize the death. And in, yeah, yeah. obviously in the UK, it's... Uh, well, just, uh, <laughs> um, but the thing about America is, again, because it's four countries, it looks like a singular problem. But it's actually a lot of different states working on its own shit and that and trump is right it is up to the companies. um
1: yeah that's I mean, what he said yesterday no or when was this
0: yeah he said at some point yeah
1: yeah i think yeah i think at least i read yesterday yeah it's, it's, insane. it's insane yeah it's super crazy. It's crazy.
0: yeah i mean i don't agree with them at all but i but the thing is when i look at the technical structure i go you know what I see it, the machine's built like this. And that's what everyone in Europe needs to know, is that what they're seeing is the machine working. And because the majority of those deaths are black, and that's how our Holocaust happens. It happens systemically across places like Detroit, like where the city just crumbles and they leave you there. It happens, um, yeah, like with coronavirus. And I don't know what next, trick they have up their sleeve for this uh this genocide but hopefully it's not a guerrilla war but that's kind of what i'm imagining is just a shit ton more vengeance. and that's the thing the kkk in my hometown was like they actually threatened to to attack a black lives matter protest they didn't show up luckily um and the protesters tore down a statue a confederate statue downtown but i'm hoping that the white supremacists are just bluffing but Yeah, and if you ever want to know how stupid Americans are, so the particular people that they grabbed out of West Africa have a tradition called the griot tr- uh, tradition. Um, what a griot is is a kind of shaman that travels from town to town, like a proto MC, and would be paid to. They would go through ceremonies and be paid to tell the entire story of their villages and just spill it out in one improv, like improv improvisational echo. And uh, a lot of us were in the packs of people that they brought up to America. So Americans are so stupid, they brought over the literal greatest storytellers in the world. And uh, here we are.
2: social is of as place, placed in an unfamiliar drama of organized living. A horizon behind, a glass ceiling of assimilation is firmly established and lodged into the dialogic imagination of the black body. A history is lost, and a will is broken. and unwanted home of the black body, is a tightly run corporation that produces bodies as its own self-regulating labor force, with its freedoms of movement in conjunction and apart from its labors, bifurcated by color and associated behavior. America is an ecology of deletion, an alchemical force of becoming bleaching out the surface of its citizenship content for its own comfort and efficiency. The distribution of potential futures in its labor market is a sophisticated form of genocide designed to flush black male bodies out of both the labor market and the natural reproductive narrative. Drifting apart. The project of the distillation of an entire ethnic code and the dissolution of the black body is set into motion as an automated phenomenon, a perfect heist, as much as it is, as much it is, a hilarious comedy of errors across its own daily interactions with itself and amongst others, until every drop of black substance is gone.